I, I realized I don't want to preach about anything. I don't have that much I want to say about it. What I want to say is that I wanted to talk about how we're all interconnected. I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. I first met Tim when I was still a founder and I was at a conference and he was teaching a masterclass on storytelling because he is a world-class storyteller. He created a not-so-small TV series you may have heard of, Heroes, which won an Emmy, but Heroes is just one of the many shows he has created. Some of the other shoes include Touch, Dig, Crossing Jordan, and Treadstone. One of the things I love about Tim is he is constantly innovating and pushing the boundaries of story. He has created multi-platform narratives and live immersive entertainment like Conspiracy for Good, which won a digital Emmy. He also plays in the world of technology, whether using it to enhance his narratives or building apps. He has an app called ChangeUp, which allows users to instantly donate to over 850,000 charities, and it became the exclusive charitable giving platform for Apple Pay. His passion for story, but also making a positive impact in the world, is why I appreciate his work and why I'm so excited to have him here today for this conversation. Thank you, Tim, for being here. I'm pumped. Yeah, likewise. Um, I want to know, because we've actually never talked about this, what drew you to story in the first place? Well, actually, I came at it from, um, from the photography side. I was a, um, I was a sort of a budding photographer in high school, you know, kind of trying to do art kind of photography. And then, you know, I was the yearbook photographer and all that oh, cool. kind of stuff. And, um, and I actually kind of put myself a little bit through college by being a photographer. So when I went to graduate school, you get slotted into a, um, a lane when you get to do, that you have to choose when you, when you go into production. And I decided that, you know, becoming a cinematographer is what I wanted to do. And so I took all of the courses on cinematography and lighting and all of that. And, um, and that's what I sort of, I came out of school having, I, I directed movies and all, and, and I had to write projects and things like that, but I was mainly wanted to be a cinematographer. So then when I got out of film school, I, um, I worked in production and depending on the size of the production, it would determine what I did. So if it was a larger production, I might just be like a, a gaffer or pulling cables or just that, you know, um, or a, a documentary, I might be the cameraman or a you know, music video, I might actually get to be the cinematographer and actually design the whole thing. And so I worked for a few years in production and I noticed um, that a bunch of my friends who came through film school with me, the ones who had followed the writer's track, that they suddenly had like things going on in their <laughs> lives, you know? They were getting deals and, you know, I was kind of, you know, driving around in this shitty car and... <laughs> and, uh, and how old were you at this point, just based some frame of reference? Mid-twenties. Okay. Yeah, mid-twenties. and. Um, you know, it's just working job to job. And these guys that had, 
you know, gone to film school with, they're, you know, getting, you know, overall deals at studios and things like that. And I, and I thought, you know what, I, I could write. I've got something else to say. Well, actually, it was, there was a fork in the road. So this is interesting. I, I was working as a production, um, I mean, as a, uh, uh, an assistant cameraman for a really famous cinematographer um, named Vilmos Zygmunt, who was a, you know, Academy Award-winning cinematographer, when he did commercials. And in commercials, you don't use a second assistant cameraman, mm. usually. Um, and so I would slide onto the camera crew to get around the union kind of thing as a PA, and I work as a... And he sponsored to get me into the camera union, into the mm. cameraman's union. And which, you know, at the time, somebody had to like die to have a, a, a slot open up. And so I had this fork in the road where I was like, oh, I could join the union and work my LA up. And in five years, I'd be a first assistant. In 10 years, I'd be a cameraman. And 15 years from now, I might be able to be a cinematographer, right? And I was like, you know, I, I just don't know if this is like I'm, I don't think I'm a union kind of guy, you know? I don't think I'm a punch the clock yeah. kind of guy. I think I have something to say and I don't know what it is. So I sat down and I wrote a script. Mm. And, um, and I ran around, uh, you know, uh, trying to get an agent. I finally got an agent and I ran around taking meetings all over town for a couple more years while I paid the bills by doing production wow. work. And, um, and then I got my first job as a writer, um, working on a, uh, a show called Night Rider about a talking very car. Very famous show, you know? very famous show. And um, I'm not working on the show, I wrote an episode. I was right. a freelance writer. And it was my first paying job and I was like amazed because, you know, it's union, you know, guild minimum pay for, for an episode of television, which was way more than I could make in months and months and months and months of working pr production jobs. And the whole job took me about two weeks. They needed it really quickly. And I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. I've got to keep doing it. So it was, when you say what got me into, it was necessity. It was wanting to, so to interesting. break into Hollywood in a way that could help me leapfrog the fastest. And But once you got into story, do you feel like something clicked because I think like when we're when we're younger, we're operating out of survival and there's a lot of yeah. unconscious stuff that leads us to our consciousness. And so I wonder, because I think of you now knowing you as like such a master storyteller, like it's so in yeah. your DNA. It's, it's, it's odd because the answer is no. I don't think there was ever like, I, I didn't grow up writing a lot or necessarily even reading a lot. I wasn't much of a reader. Um, and um, so, no, it was actually the, the challenge. It, it became like a craft for a long time. It was a craft I wanted to learn. And because I was working freelance, it kind of lent itself to just developing the craft because nobody came to me for what I had to say. Right. They were, I was getting jobs based on what was needed, you know, a, a auditioning, for, you know, going out and pitching for a gig, you know, a television movie, and it would be a, you know, what they call a disease of the week movie, you know, where, or, or uh, 
you know, um, um, an episode of television of a show that I would never watch kind of thing. Yeah. But I'd have to learn that show. And, and embody that and voice. Then, yes. And then, and learn how to become a forger, you know, like how to, how to forge somebody else's writing. Yeah. And I actually think, and I haven't thought about this but before, but you, 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 you're sort of making me think about this, that I think that craftsman approach that I had to, and not the I'm burning to write the great American screenplay and I have something to say and I'm gonna get it. I, that wasn't me. I, I was like, how do I gain this? How do I figure this out? Somebody wants me to write a horror film and I'm not really a horror genre guy, but I go and rent 20 horror films and, and right. watch them and oh, that's what they do at the end of act two. Oh, there's always that scene. Oh, there's, you know, and so it was figuring out how to, how to be a craftsman is what then led me to a place where I wanted to be a better storyteller. Well, I think it's the pro you enjoyed the process, I and mean, this is a lot of what I try and get people to take home with them is that if you love the process, the goals come. But you have to be really super engaged in the process. Yeah. You can't be just chasing the goal yeah. because the process is what makes the goal happen. Yeah. And so, in that process of developing your craft, when did when what what was the point at which you started to be like, I have something to say, and yeah. here's what I want to say. Okay. So, so the first the first thing I'm going to say is that I, I don't know that I. Um, my drive was not out of love of the craft. It was out of, I don't have anything else that I can do very well. And I don't really know, I can't hammer a nail, you know? I, I this is it. <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have a, like a marketable skill set and I'm not going back to pulling cables. I've done that. So I got to figure this thing out, right? Wow. And, and so it was, out of that more than like the love of it because it's always been a little painful to, to write. <laughs> it's not the easiest No, it's career. very hard. And it's very hard. Yeah, it's a very difficult, you know, career to crack. But a big turning point for me, um, when you say that, you know, sort of what was a moment, it was, there was, um, and th this was when I had what I guess would be considered, you know, great success in that I got my own show on the air. And um, it's a that? show called Crossing Jordan. Yes, I know it. And I'd had one other show before that, but this was really my own, that I'd co-written with somebody. It's my own show. And we were actually pre-launch. We were in production, but hadn't launched yet. And 9-11 um, and happened. And half of my cast were New Yorkers, diehard, you know, New Yorkers. And... Um, we uh, we literally we took one day off, and the studio made us go back to work the next Whoa. day. And um, I show up at the set, and I'm looking around at you know all of the actors in makeup, you know, kind of fake looking because they're all made up, you know. <laughs> And these fake sets, you know, that you can knock yeah. on the wall and it's empty. Yeah. Doors that don't lead anywhere and all that. And, and we're, and the actors are pretending to be people that they're not, of course, because they're, you know. And I was just struck by just how phony it all was mm. and how meaningless it seemed. Like, 
Mm. What are we doing here? You know, and the world is full of all this real like suffering and we're doing this fake thing. And so I, and, and so because the show hadn't launched yet, our order was for 13 episodes, right? And which is a traditional network order. And then in success, you get picked up for the, for the right. rest of the year, right? So we were just breaking the 13th episode, which was, in my mind, the last episode we were ever going to do. Right, because you never know yep. if you get picked up. Yeah. And so I was like, you know what? I've got to say something about what happened. <laughs> and, and I decided to do this episode of television. It's still my favorite episode of, that I ever wrote. Oh, wow. Um, and it was an odd episode that when you look at it, you would never think, oh, this had something to do with 9-11 at all. But it was, it was basically about this idea. Like, I, I, I realized I don't want to preach about anything. I don't have that much I want to say about it. What I want to say is that we're somehow all connected to one another. The fact that these guys flew an airplane into buildings and brought down the entire world economy and, and all the suffering in the world. I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about how we're all interconnected. And so I thought interconnectivity is really a theme that I really want to talk about. And um, so I wrote this episode that was a daisy chain of, of people's lives inter, interchanging and, and interconnecting with one another in kind of magical ways. And I fell in love with that concept of interconnectivity. And it was out of the discussing interconnectivity and a sort of a global idea of interconnectivity that the idea for heroes came. I was, say, I was like, I was going to say it mirrors yeah. heroes a bit. And so the theme of heroes for me was about interconnectivity and global consciousness. The idea that, you know, if we could all find one another and come together, we could save the world. That was the, that was the whole idea of heroes. It wasn't about creating a superhero thing. It was no, really that's what I about, got from it. Yeah, so it was really about it, that. That was felt by me, so yeah. I feel you. And then after heroes, where the theme was about interconnectivity, I took that sort of one step farther, and I, and I, I had a show called Touch, where that wasn't the theme, it was the premise. The premise was literally about interconnectivity. The whole idea was about how the sort of red thread of fate that we're all connected to one another. So the, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that was, I, I became sort of a one-issue candidate. You know, that, yeah. was my, that was the thing I, I wanted to talk about. And, um, and yeah, it's been sort of an, a theme ever since. In my, so that was when I switched to realizing, oh, I actually have this pulpit, you know, this bully pulpit to say something. And it's, it no longer became um, satisfying to me to just entertain. I was like, because I, I think uh, for a lot of us who, you know, grew up sort of socially conscious or politically conscious, working in Hollywood has always had a kind of like, you know, you're like, am yeah. I really doing enough to, to mm -hmm. change things and to make a difference? But you always kind of justified it by saying, well, the world needs to be entertained. People need entertainment. Right. And life is difficult. And, and while that is sufficient for lots of people out there to, to work in the, with that in mind, it's not quite enough for me. I get it. Yeah. I had a very similar moment. I was doing wardrobe on a very big film. 
arguably like the best, you know, the, the best fashion job you could have. Uh-huh. And I remember there was this day, this like diamond ring went missing. And they shut down the building. Like there was an armed terrorist outside. It was like life or death. And I was like, this is a hundred million dollar movie. We have it in the, enough money in the budget. If, we, if it gets lost, you have contingency in the budget. And right. then you have insurance. Yeah, insurance, of course. So you have three opportunities here yeah. that like, even if this gets lost, yeah. we're okay. Yeah. And then of course, I was like, we're going to find it. It's not a big deal. But that, that level of stress and the idea that we were this upset over this diamond ring. Right, right. After that, I was like, I can't do wardrobe. <clears throat> I have to leave this job. And I, this is one of the only jobs I've ever quit. And I left, but I was like, I still firmly believe that entertainment is the quickest way to create change. And this mm-hmm. is a lot of what we talk about, which is how do you use the format for good? Right. And I think, you know, you do that. You think about, okay, let's entertain people, but let's also give them something deeper to connect with, right. which is hard to do well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, um, that was the whole goal of, of Heroes was, was to try to um, and we had a kind of subversive quality in the, on the show. We, um, we, all, we talked about it internally a lot. Yeah. Um, we used the phrase, we are all connected as a line of dialogue, you know, multiple times in that first season as a kind of mantra to kind of like slide it in. You know, yeah. To, and um, yeah, the idea was to not come at it fully, you know, on a full frontal assault but to be somewhat subversive about the, the idea. And I do think that that was, um, yeah, some of the secret sauce of that show was that it connect, when you said that's what you got out of it, I, you know, when I, you know, traveled around talking about the show or was on panels or stuff, people that would come up to me afterwards or fans on the, you know, that, that I encountered, um, it was always that sort of almost spiritual connection to it that they had that connected well, them to Also it. at the time, I think you were doing something a little bit ahead of everyone else, which is you created a, a global cast. Right. It wasn't, you know, just like Americans yeah. and you embodied a diverse cast. And that time was very novel. Yeah. Like, thank God it's a little bit less novel yeah. now. No, but at the time it felt really like... Radical. Yeah, and it, it just seemed like, oh, if we're going to do a show about people who, you know, the the world is suddenly populating itself with people with powers to save the world in a kind of evolutionary imperative kind of way, it seems kind of weird and provincial and disingenuous to have it just be, you know, people that we all you know, think of as on network right. television, yeah. right? What about people from different countries? What about people who don't speak our language, you know? And and just getting the network to buy into that idea was... was a struggle. It was a bit of a struggle. <laughs> the, the, number of ap- um, the number of emails with the subject line, um, subtitle fatigue, that was, that was the... Um, about how... All the reasons why we should not have any subtitle right. on, the, on the, and um, until it aired, and then people loved the characters with the subtitles, and all those emails were like, of course, yeah, stopped. Yeah. Well, it's also funny because I worked at Viacom, and one of the things you do always add subtitles for you know uh, Americans that speak English right. that aren't you know that's hard to understand, and I was oh, always right. like, oh, okay, like we're adding subtitles, yeah. but like, don't we think that? I always felt like you know. <laughs> that approach was like, we're moving lowest common denominator. We're not asking people to elevate. 
And part of what we need to do is not, you know, meet people where they are, but ask people to come up with us. Right. And that's part of the beautiful opportunity of a great TV show is to meet people and then have them raise up. Yeah. But that's a hard line to yeah. walk. And I think it's frankly with the networks, there's a lot of tension associated with that. Yeah. And they're trying to just reflect the, the general, they're trying to reflect what's going on in the country and the mood. And you have to remember also at the time when Heroes first came out, we were, we were, you know, in, in Iraq and we were at war with, you know, the, the this Islamic terrorism and there was a whole sort of jingoistic fear mm. of brown skinned people that right. were going to come and, 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 you know, perpetrate terrorist acts against us. And so that was the, right. you know, and 24 was the big right. show and that was a really kind of like the macho right. kind of attitude of being, and, and Heroes was sort of meant to be an antidote to that idea. Well, we've talked before about story. You've told me that you approach a lot of your work now, I guess, with love. Maybe not yeah. the beginning. Yeah. Um, but you're dealing with a very fear-based environment. What are what are like yeah. the tactics you employ to move <laughs> forward with love and to still do what you want to do in an environment that tends to not want to um, try new things or yeah. tends to be very fear-based? I mean, right now it is a difficult time. We're speaking at a particularly... Um, brutal time in, in, in Hollywood. There's a collapse going on that is really frightening to, to a lot of people. And um, so it's a tough one for me to put any kind of spin on because I'm finding it, um, uh, you know, particularly difficult to, to launch yeah, projects yeah. and navigate right now. Um, I do think that one of the and it's something that I've explored um, also is the idea of approaching a story world with not f just focusing 100% on, on, on one platform like a television show, thinking about how to create a story world that lives on, on multiple platforms, how to create a world that <clears throat> people have touch points that, that are not just dictated by one gatekeeper, you yep. know? Um, and if you can, it's why I, I'm so um, high on the idea of creating some kind of an IP that you get to control before you go to, mm. you know, to, to the gatekeepers, whether that's a, you know, a graphic novel or a, some kind of a light social, mobile game or something right. that you can kind of like point to as a um, as an IP that you you control where you can build some kind of an audience before you walk in the door of to one of the big it. streamers and, yeah, yeah, they're gonna it. own the whole thing yeah yeah so. I, I think that's I've always loved your approach because it is so 3d for lack of a better word yeah. that you play in all these different lanes and TV is one expression of your storytelling but then you play in live experience, yeah. you play in digital experiences, and you're really pushing the conventions of story on all fronts. And do you, where do you think that comes from? You know, for me, it was, um, it really came out of the hero's experience because I was a, I was sort of the classic um, 
you know, sort of a classic Hollywood screenwriter mentality about the audience. The audience for me didn't really exist. Uh, my, my work was about the script and about, you know, if you were on a show, the script is written months before the, the audience sees it. So there's no sense that, right? And, um, and then when it aired before the internet, um, when, it, when a show would air, the audience, the only reaction that you had to, or, or feedback that you got from the audience was through the Nielsen ratings, right. which was really just a kind of like binary thumbs up, thumbs down kind yes. of idea. And so your, your involvement as a storyteller with your audience was literally like standing on a stage with bright lights. Mm. You never knew who they were, where they were, what they, they were just a Nielsen rating number, right? Then a show like Heroes comes along with the internet, with sort of the whole idea of like, um, you know, the two-way street where you push content out and you get stuff back from the audience. It's a feedback loop, right? Chat rooms, um, fan fiction, um, you know, all of the sort of fan-based yeah. kind of stuff. And we started to, to realize at the time there was a, <clears throat> the audiences were dropping like, you know, the ratings were, were tanking. And so, so NBC, um, the network uh, that did Heroes, um, they had, when Heroes launched, uh, or when Heroes was first picked up, they had like six people in their dot-com division, their digital division. Right. And four months later, when the show launched, after it got picked up, um, there were 67 people in that. They, they hired 60 people over the summer. And the mandate was, get out there and figure out where this audience is going. Because they were disappearing off of watching television. And, and you know, the, the ratings for all of television were tanking. And so um, that mandate of get out there and figure this out met with a show that was meant for a sort of a tech-savvy, young... And you a know, rabid uh, fan base. Like, it's and a, a hungry and a rabid, exactly. fan base. And so the two <laughs> that met one another. And so we basically became the Skunk Works um, R&D division oh, cool. for how to figure this stuff out. And there was no, there was no need to, mo um, to monetize any of it because it was all deemed... R&D and promotion and marketing for the, for the show. And so nobody knew, there was no such thing as a bad idea because nobody knew what a bad idea was. And so we just threw shit at the wall and pitched as many ideas as we could. And we had uh, 50 people working on this content on the show, which is unheard of now on a show. You would never yeah. have that. Um, so it was a unique time. And because of that, we were able to do this enormous amount of content. We did, you know, mockumentaries and games and digital comic books and mobile games and pop-ups and live events and, you know, all these crazy things that we're all trying to figure out how to fish where the fish were. The audience was not watching television. So how do you, how do you reach them? And so, you know, we had just an enormous amount of 
like almost a blank check to do all this stuff. Right. So, so it was really um, out of that that my, uh, I kind of fell in love with the, the, the two-way street of it, the idea yeah. of the immediacy of having an audience that was a kind of a feedback loop. You also got this like great crash course into like, oh, all these different modalities of storytelling and like which one speaks to me and yeah. which one is connecting and... And, and so I, you know, I, from that, I, um, I realized uh, that a lot of the audience had connected in the way that you said you connected to the show and they cared about things. They cared about wanting to do things to save the world and, you know, and so um, uh, I came up with this, this, um, this idea called Conspiracy, the Conspiracy for Good, which was, um, and, and pitched it to, um, to Nokia, which at the time was the largest um, manufacturer of, hand, of handsets in the world. They had a huge, uh, like 76% of the global market Wild. share, right? And, um, and they loved this idea. And the idea was to create a, a, um, a story-driven world that lived in a kind of multi-platform mm. way that people could use very early AR, it wasn't AR, it was image recognition technology, yeah. and find the, the story. And so ostensibly it became a, a kind of a giant scavenger hunt story. Yeah. Um, but it was all about connecting with a real audience in almost real time. To, and the audience became sort of participants in the, in the story. Um, and they were trying to solve a murder mystery and you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. That's so cool. Yeah, it was a really, really fun idea. So I just, I don't know, I fell in love with this idea that story doesn't, isn't this linear thing. It's, it's sort of a three-dimensional, there's story up here and there's story over there. And with something like Heroes, we had so much story because we had built this giant story world, and that's what this requires. It requires, I mean, in order to do it well, you have to have enough of a story world to live in all these different in places, all these different yeah, I can't, I can't hold yeah. up if it doesn't have yeah. that deep universe. Like you know, that's what they always say. It's like Hollywood's always looking for universes exactly. that yeah. you can really just push and like. They, there's so much content that it becomes its own world, yeah. and that's what Heroes was. It was a whole universe that you embodied, and then you got to go down all these different tentacles. exactly. And I think that what it, what it showed is that there is a um, there is a model that nobody has really done well, and that's this idea of I mean, there's a reason why giant um, games very rarely become big movies or big television shows. And um, uh, it's, it's because those cultures are very different and their business models are very different. And the people who occupy those worlds don't really know anything about film. And, and yep. so, I, you know, I've always thought that putting together a, a, um, a company that understands these yep. worlds... And I would say there's sort of three actually categories. There's, there's linear content, there's the kind of gaming world, and then a new one that I think has emerged is the whole idea of immersive yep. and live stuff, yep. the kind of live event idea, which I think post uh, pandemic is going to be on the hockey stick. I agree. And so if you can understand those three markets, how can a story you know, start as one thing and then migrate more easily to another. Um, and let's say that those are each represented by three blades of a, of a fan that yep. spins, right? So you launch a, a, 
a linear content that then drives an audience to the to the game content, which then drives the audience to some live experiential pop-up, yep. AR, immersive, yep. Pokemon Go, some you know, totally. some version of that. And you create, you know, this fan can create um, a kind of a content velocity that yeah. pushes audi- audiences from one to the other. And that's a, a concept that's still really hard to pitch in Hollywood, again, because nobody really under, everybody's in their silos. Well, it's also so hard to do well. I think that's, the, that's one of the major problems I always felt in Hollywood is that they speak one specific language. Yes. And when you start to speak a different language, there's, they don't understand they it. They glaze over. Yeah, they know what they know. Yeah, they glaze over. But that's also one of the things that's contributing to yeah. the collapse that we're seeing. And so it's the lack of innovation, the lack of acceptance of technology that's inhibiting the own, their profit line, but then also the potential of story. Right. And so fingers crossed, like that's changing, I hope. Yeah, but, and, and like you said, you know, when they glaze over, it's most people, and you can't really blame them, their job is to do one thing in this, totally. sky, in this, in this they're a cog in a bigger, and their job is not to come in with that idea, no. right? Their job is to do that, right? So, so it's, it's often hard to think I was of that like, person at the company and then I left. It's so. often hard, hard to think of like, well, who do I pitch this? Right. I mean, and oftentimes that would have to be the big no, it has guy. To be the C- it has to be the CEO or <laughs> yeah. the decision maker that can yeah. then champion the rest of the team. It, yeah. But if you're managing up and you're rallying around an idea, there's so many chains of no's above you yeah. that it's so hard to get anything through the pipeline. Yeah. And the interesting, you know, I told you about the, the whole idea of the skunk works that we did on Heroes was really a fascinating case study because that was, at the time, that was GE that owned NBC. So it was oh. this big corporate structure. And um, it was before Comcast. Um, a giant corporate structure there and a big giant, you know, with multiple divisions and all that. And so when we did all of these interesting merchandising things and pop-up events and world tours and, and, and you know, animated stuff. And uh, we had to get people together from different divisions in the company. Right. To for, speak to each other. To speak to each other. And so we'd go into these conference rooms with 40 people in it. And the first 20 minutes of the meetings would be people introducing themselves across the table to one another. Yep. They worked four floors down from one another in the tower, you know, but they'd never met Mm -hmm. and they wouldn't have met, but for this one reason, reason. And so I think a lot of, a lot of it is, is that, that, that people have become very siloed. And the idea that I'm talking about of kind of a, a larger, you know, is interconnectedness. Yeah. Is just (laughs) original theme. It's too, yeah. It's just too, um, outside the, box. No, it's true. I felt that often because I would try and like help different divisions when I was in corporate entertainment and they'd always feel very territorial. There's always this amount of resistance. I was like, I'm not trying to do do your job. I'm trying to actually support you in your job so that we're speaking to each other so we can have like a better result. But because they're so siloed, there's also a lot of like protectivity and fear base that just like that interconnectedness is the point. It all collaboration makes everything better. And I, I think that's one of the big problems with corporate environments is that to grow you have to silo yeah. but then how do you grow eloquently and that's exactly the problem and i think look the, the the bottom line for it's all about the audience and trying to find as big an audience as you can and when you think you, you look at what's happened out there with the audience the, the fragmentation the fracturing of the audience and and how um you know the writing is on the wall that there needs to be some or that there's a there's a way to think about that big audience in, in a new way. And 
I mean, you, you look at something like the, the Game of Thrones series finale when it aired on HBO, right? Um, the audience on YouTube that tries to find like, you know, a water bottle in the background, or, right. you know, or, right. or the fan. Yeah. Some of those views um, on channels dwarfed the audience that HBO yeah, of course. Got, got. And, you know, you would, th and there's no, there's no tie-in between that audience and the show, right? Why are those separate? Yeah. Why isn't that a touch point that the show can tap into, right. you know? Um, you know, a, a Katy Perry video can get a billion views on, no, there's not a billion people watching Game of Thrones. Well, why is that, right? Well, so there's the, a way to, to connect it all. Yeah, totally. I also think that like, you know, if you look at like Taylor Swift has all the conspiracy theories around her music and all the right. nuggets and all the eggs and you don't have to be a listener to engage with the content, exactly. which I think is how do you then create the next tier, which is watch this and then engage yep. because you can just like follow along with the thread without actually watching because it's like a bite size right. thing. Right. So then how do you, it's hard. Yeah. And you know, I think there's something probably there's a way to think about it in Hollywood that I, I, I can't crack it myself, but somebody smarter can. The idea of, you know, tracking, you know, we all know about big data. Well, yep. there, there's also a version of like big audience. <laughs> the idea of like yep. that idea that a touch point can be valuable, a way for somebody to get to monetize that touch point. That should be coming next. And I know. agree. I think that's a very... Yeah underutilized space, yeah. which is we have all this data, but we're not actually employing it to the benefit of Hollywood. Maybe yeah. that wise up. And I'm, listen, I'm fascinated. I'm still fascinated by that. And, and the problem is that it, the way that Hollywood thinks about that is, okay, in success, we'll spend the marketing yes. dollars to do something, right? And, and I think, you know, the thinking is, why would we spend a penny more to get it? So an audience that we already ha that we already have, you know, that's already going to watch the show. Why would we spend that extra money to do some other, you know, not understanding that audience is, it's very, you know, it's not, it's it's very difficult to get a broad audience these days, but it's much easier to get a deep audience, an audience right. that will follow you. But I think that the, the questions that weren't being asked in my time in corporate entertainment, which is when I would have a focus group around something and I would, you know, vocalize my resistance to a joke or something. Um, they'd be like, well, you're not the audience, you're not the audience. Right. And I was like, A, we don't know who the audience is. Mm -hmm. And B, why aren't we asking, how do you make me the audience? Right, like, right. There's no... How do you win you over? Yeah, it's yeah. like, why those, whether or not that's the point, it's a thought exercise that will enable innovation and creativity and yeah. thinking around audience. Yeah. But instead of doing the creative exercise, we just say, well, you're not the demo, you're not who we're going after, so we're just gonna move right. on. Or how do, I help, how do they help you go out and find other people who are the audience, exactly. right? And connect you to those people. Exactly. I mean, that's the amazing thing about a giant global audience nowadays is that you can find one another. And, yeah. um, you know, if you have some obscure thing that you're interested in, you can find a YouTube channel yeah. and you can find a community and you can connect to those people. No, it's cool. So. It's very cool. What do you attribute your, I guess, creative sustainability to? Um, you know, I'm going to be, <laughs> I mean, I, a lot of it is just the, uh, 
there are things now that I actually do want to talk about, you know, um, in the same way that I think a lot of people are feeling right now. There is an urgency that's out there um, about the world. Things seem to be a lot more serious. Yes. And I don't know whether that's just getting older and crankier or, but it feels like that's happening for everybody. So I feel an urgency now that I didn't used to, you know, before sort of luxury that, oh, I want to talk about interconnectivity and it's a kind of wouldn't it be nice if somebody was talking about that right now it feels like there's an alarm bell that right. needs I have to, be, to talk yeah, about like, it there's an alarm going on and so I'm feeling a little bit more urgent about wanting to just be a part of the conversation and you know I don't do social media I think if I were a screamer on Twitter and you know, big poster of my worldviews, and maybe I would, you know, exercise some of that. But I, my my mode of expression is, you know, is is writing. I think that's great. I think it's so hard though to do what you've done, which is over a long career, keep writing great work, keep getting your work made, yeah, and then it connecting. It's a very it's very rare. Uh, yeah, and it, I mean, the, the connecting thing is always the hard one, but now it's like I was just saying, you don't have to have a broad audience anymore. You used to, you know, when I first started with network t television, the whole idea was to be all things to all people right. as much as you could, right? And you were trying to hit as broad an audience as possible. And I think we've all been kind of liberated by that through the proliferation of, of content now. You. You don't have to be all things. You you have to be, you have to be truthful and authentic to a smaller audience, and that will keep you, that will keep you alive. So there's a, almost like a stripping away of the phoniness, and you can be more true to what you really what want to say. say. Yeah. So we had spoken once, and I want to talk a little bit more about like your leadership yeah. style. Yeah. And you said this thing to me that yeah. I thought about for the next like couple weeks. You said that you're your career has been a quest to be left alone. Uh. <laughs> and I love this. I love this because yeah. great leadership is respecting people's skill set, mm -hmm. their autonomy, and still, you know, holding them accountable as and when they need to be. But that's really what great leadership is. You get yourself to a space where you run an organization that you can be left yeah. alone. Yeah. So how did that develop over time? And as a leader, what do you think you've employed to be successful in that? I mean, there's sort of two aspects to that to what I said to you. I mean, one is the idea of wanting to get to a position in my career where I had less um, uh, fear-based, you know, getting notes constantly. And, and, and that never ends, obviously. No. I mean, not, not in the least. But the, the whole goal of wanting to, like, be more in control of my own destiny, to be left to, to, to sort of push aside, swat, a, swat away all the bad ideas and all of the bullshit that you have to go through in order to get. I just, you know, you sort of dream of like having enough kind of juice and enough power as a storyteller to, 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 for people to trust you and, you yeah. know, and not have to, to overly explain everything you're doing constantly. But then the second half of it is once you get something like a television show going you have two or three hundred employees and people that you work with 
the I found, you know, I'm still a solitary person and, you know, a part, large portion of my day has to be by myself and, and in, in contemplation and work and all that. And so that the other half of that is the quest to be left alone is to build enough of a team, a trusted enough team, hand the keys off to them enough and empower people enough so that I don't have to be in everybody's business all the time and I'm overseeing things. And so there's a kind of building in your own obsolescence has become a big part of how I try to run a show, um, empower people enough. You know, when you throw people into the deep end, you know, one of a couple of things can happen, you know, they can sink and it's a miserable, yeah. you know, they, they drown because you threw them into the deep end. But if you throw them into the deep end and they're not used to that and they flir they flourish, it's unbelievable because they leapfrog into this whole self-actualized totally. idea of who they can be in the world. And you discover that you can create people around you who are enormously empowered by doing that. And um, so, you know, I, I've had those experiences on shows that were up and running and where, you know, I walk into a meeting that I used to lead and I open the door and I look in and everybody kind of looks over at me and, you know, you guys need anything? And they're like, no, we're good. And I close the door and I'm quietly, you know, there might be a little pang of like, oh, I'm not needed anymore. <laughs> but mostly it's like, okay, mission accomplished. I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually you know, building enough of a farm team to, to take, take yeah, it over. It becomes its own engine. So this gets me to one thing that I need to say about uh, the new version of Hollywood where that is not often the case anymore because shows are designed often now where a writer's room is hired, the writers write the show, the, the scripts are, are, are written and done, then everybody's let go, and then the show goes into production. So the idea of throwing somebody into the deep end, who was a writer, a writer-producer, yeah. and letting them produce their own episodes and figure out how to do right. all the various steps that you need in order to become a seasoned producer. Um, so what we're finding, I think, in Hollywood is a whole generation of writers who don't have the same production sets. experience. and which shows in the kind of writing that they do and why oh, budgets are not in control. And, you know, once you've written, once you've written for a production that has a budget and you've had to oversee that, you learn really quickly right. what you can and can't do. And there's no, there's no substitute for that. And so I feel like we're losing this kind of apprentice, mentor apprentice thing that for you know, years and yep. years and years was the farm system, which gave us great showrunners and, and experienced producers. I just don't know how that happens anymore in Hollywood. I've never heard that articulated, but there's always this idea that there's not enough showrunners. And I always just thought, okay, well, because writing and producing is like creative business brain, and that's a hard skill right, set right, to right. have anyways. Yeah. Not everyone's built that way. But really, it might just be a fault of the system and how we're operating now is that we're not actually training some of those yeah. people that could be great showrunners to be showrunners. Yeah, I mean, listen, for the for years and years and years, you work, you got yourself a, a position on a writing staff. You came in as a staff writer, a co 
um, uh, you know, a um, co-producer or a story editor, you know, something at that level. And then when, and you worked your way up, and then at one point you'd be given the opportunity to produce your own episode, right? And then you became a supervising yep. producer, and then a co-EP, and then, and eventually you were like, well, there's only really one more job on my resume, right? Yep. So you'd work your way up. It's sort of like the guy who's been vice president for yep. eight years, runs for president. There's only one more job on left on the resume yeah. at, at that point. And, you know, so for a lot of people, it had been years and years and years of sitting in the seat next to the guy who's running the show, learning what not to do most of the time. Yeah. I mean, most of the time you learn from what not to do. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm never going to be that guy. I would do that differently. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, I'm never going to scream at that person like that. And I'm never going to, you know, you learn all these sort of things of like what, what you know, what not to do. And um, yeah, I don't know where that, I don't know where that school of, you know, real life comes from anymore. Fair. And, you know, you have people now who become showrunners um, because they wrote a project that yep. somebody wants to spend $100 million on. And it's on. also a mess. And then do you wonder why? And, and, you know, that's the skill set that gets somebody, you know, to the point where they can write a script that gets made. That skill has nothing to do with being a manager of people, budgets totally. and people. Those two things have nothing to do with one another. But one of the things I want to talk about in your, in the way that you've built these engines around you, it's also allowed you, which I think is a counter narrative to what happens in cult culturally, is it's allowed you to be a very present husband and father. And I think we often don't hear that right, side right. of the story, which is like you built a career that was still a very demanding career and a structure that oftentimes people are like, I have to work crazy hours and right. we're shooting yep. a show. It's, it's bananas. And you were able to create the boundaries to still be successful, work that crazy schedule, but make sure that you were present in your life because that was important to yep. you. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that because I just uh, think yeah. we don't hear it. From I mean, my, my kids showed up just as I became a showrunner. And so th that coincided with that part of my, my career. Um, I had uh, a real leg up on, I think, a lot of people nowadays in that I was able to make shows in the city that I lived in. Right. And, um, you know, that's a, to be able to go home and sleep in your own bed at night and, or to be able to run home in the middle of the day or run to the, a school event or something like that. So I was physically in the space where my family was. Huge advantage right there. But second one is back to this idea of wanting to create an environment. Um, and it was, for me, was my introverted personality that drove that was, that, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable being around people all day long. I want to be able to, you know, escape. oh, I've got to go home and write the second act of that script that we to do tomorrow, right? Yeah. It was always an excuse to, to you know, <laughs> to leave. To, to, to leave. <laughs> and so, you know, I, 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 there are some people who their social life is the thing that energizes them and gives them energy. And I always had the opposite, you know. Right. I'm sort of a classic introvert in that I get, you know, Exhausted. I get sort of depleted by, by being around people all day long and I need to re recharge. And so, it's hard to sort of separate what part of your question is just driven by my personality type and my sure. desire to, to and, and just putting an emphasis on wanting to, 
be there to raise my kids. I didn't want to, yeah. you know, I, I saw showrunners. That's the other thing. I'd work for showrunners who I couldn't believe that they were as driven by this thing right. that they were able to neglect, you know, husbands, wives, you know, uh, family. and it, it just seemed ridiculous to me. What is ridiculous? And when people die, like uh, the top five regrets people have when they're dying is that they didn't spend enough time with yeah, people that they love. And so I just wanted to talk about it because I feel like we always ask women that question yeah. around work-life balance. But we don't ask men. And I think that you have, whether or not it was an intrinsic personality trait, you have embodied something that we don't see a lot of in the sphere of show running. And so I just wanted to mention it because and, and, it's very cool. You know, television at the time, I mean, there was also a kind of, it's interesting because I hadn't really thought about this in a long time, but there used to be two separate worlds as a writer. You were either a television writer or you're a feature writer. And the TV writers were sort of the redheaded stepchild. They were like the ones that, and it was a, a world that was very working class. It's true. I remember this time. It was a very working class. Your executive, you know, drove a station wagon and had a, dog in the back of the car and, and soccer practice that he's got to take his kids mm. to and that and it was a very working class they lived out in the valley and right and and the feature executives drove porsches and didn't have families and you know they were there was something mysterious about them and all, oh, interesting. and i kind of grew up in the tv side mm. where it was very working class and you didn't you weren't you never thought about, oh, I'm gonna be on the Tonight Show, or something. you know. You never had. It never felt like right. you were part of this mystique of Hollywood. You were this the working class part of Hollywood, and that's a really yeah. interesting distinction because you're right. It was TV became a bigger thing. Oh yeah, there, no, there it was. Flipped, but... I, I was a rare. I actually was a rare for whatever reason, partly because I didn't have a genre that I worked in, you know, I was like a utility kind of guy. When I was a freelance writer, I was a, I was, I guess what you would call an A-list TV movie writer, because there was the whole TV movie industry that I kind of worked on. I wrote many of these TV movies. Every network had like, you know, 50, uh, CBS I think did 60 TV movies a year. Crazy. Uh, two nights a week. And um, it was a whole industry. Most of them shot up in Canada and they were made here and they had their own executives that handled all of those. Um, so I was an A-list TV movie writer. I, I could work there all the time. And then I was, I guess what you would call a C-list uh, uh, feature writer. Mm -hmm. I, was a I was a rewrite guy. So of the 11 writers that, that would have been on some movie, I was number six out of, right. out of 11, you know, and I wrote that, right? And so I was able to see both worlds and I was able to see how I had this unique view of like the, the station wagon with the dog in the back on one and the coked out guy yeah. with the Porsche in the other. I, I actually had a view in both, to both worlds and they always seemed ridiculously far apart. Like they didn't, they didn't yeah. go together very well. You know, they, they were not part of the, the fact that they both worked kind of in this area was unique, but they had nothing to do with one another. No, they're very, yeah. they used to be yeah. very bifurcated. Very, yeah. and, and it was very hard to break into, break through the ceiling into the feature side. That was yeah. this rarefied thing. So crazy. And I never really, 
I never really wanted it that bad, that the feature stuff. I, I liked the working class thing. Yeah, you like. I mean, a classic example in, in the TV movie world, you have an. This is why. You'd have an executive in the TV movie world. The 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 script would go would be developed by them. You'd write it for that executive. I'd say, and it's an executive at CBS, who, and they do sixty movies a year. That executive may be in charge of fifteen of those movies. So, over the years, fifteen movies a year that he's taken from a pitch to going to the set to that executive had made you know sixty movies in five five yeah, right crazy and really knew. Every process knew what a production meeting was, knew what a tech scout was, knew every aspect of it. And so when that executive gave you a note on the script, you're like, well, I may not agree with that note wholly, but the guy's made 60 movies. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, They're he, an knows, expert. Yeah, he knows yeah. what he's talking about. You never had that feeling on the feature side. The guy that you were getting the notes from had never made a movie. Right. You know, if, if he came close, his boss took it over. Right. And, you know, never been to a set, really, except for to right. be the guy in the suit who stood around once or twice. So I just found the quality of, of like, th there was a smoke and mirrors quality to the feature stuff that was, you know, yeah, Tom, no, Tom Cruise was always attached to the project. Yeah. And, and, Air. Yeah, and, and, um, you know, in the TV side, if somebody told you that Tom Cruise is attached to your project, well, on Tuesday when we go into production, if Tom Cruise isn't there, then you were lying to me, right? No, it's very easy to see what's yeah, so, real, a lot easier, yeah. Yeah, so, 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 so as a result, you weren't lied to in that time. There, was no, there wasn't any smoke and mirrors. Everything was really practical and really, you know, um, it was sort of the opposite of the hype machine. Right. So interesting. And so, so I think some of this is that I just came out of that, that idea, you know, that sort of working class mentality of what the product is. Yeah, which has served you yeah. obviously very well. And 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 goes back to my thing about like I I, I used to have, I I made myself a business card as a joke because no writer ever has a business card, and I remember I made it I made a business card and had a little a little guy's head on there with and I put a light bulb over the top of it. And and the business card was Tim Crane, professional writer. Oh my god! Uh, it was just a joke. To Hilarious. Him. And then my little catchphrase was, "I'll write anything." Right? Oh my god! Which you did. It's accurate. <laughs> and, and it turned out that that was actually what it was. I actually, if somebody asked me to write a teen comedy, I'm like, "Oh, okay, I can figure that." I'll figure you it know. out. Um, you know, a slasher, horror, you know, Friday the, I mean, uh, you know, Chainsaw Massacre kind of thing. Okay. I'll, See if I can do that, you know. So well, it's also I, like no ego. You approach everything with as a challenge. You weren't yeah. like I'm only writing this, which is a lot of the yeah. hierarchy of Hollywood. You have these people that think they're better than or power over, and, and you're just. And I'm not taking away anything from people who are that way. That that's awesome. Sure. I actually they have a lane. I actually they know well. that you know. But but for me, not being able to be pigeonholed, um, just allowed me all those years of just developing a, a, a craft and a, you know. Um, cause you, you just, I find that I rely on that craft all the time. I'm like, oh, I wrote that scene one time. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to change this to this. And yeah. it's exact. I've, I've, I've done this structure. I know how to make this act work, you know, differently. Yeah. Okay. 
We're going to, I feel like I have so much more I want to talk about because we haven't even gotten to your philanthropic stuff, but we have to wrap. Well, that'll be for the next time. Exactly, for the next time. Yeah. We'll have a lot more to talk about, but that's good because I was, obviously we had a lot to say and was very And engaged. I talked too much. No, no, I loved it. I was like, I've, I have like a lot of synapses firing that I'll be thinking about okay. later. But we're going to jump into our rapid fire section. And so just answer however okay. feels authentic to you in the moment. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Um, uh, don't sweat the little things. That's a good one. Yeah. What's the last book you read? Um, I just finished, um, uh, Yuval Harari's 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Oh, okay. Sounds good. Yeah. What are you struggling with right now? Um, I, uh, I want to... Uh, I want I want to rekindle this idea of of saying of, of wanting to wanting to have uh, wanting to feel like I have something um, urgent to say. I want to I want to I'm, I'm struggling with how to actually navigate the urgency of it. Um, it's I want to be entertaining, but I want to. In the current project I'm working on, I, I'm trying to figure out how to weave it in without being, without sort of showing um, my hand <laughs> that I'm as urgent and as um, as alarmed as I am. Yeah, there was one. something easier uh, before our current <laughs> situation. Yeah. What is bringing you joy right now? Um, music. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Such a good, such I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a big vinyl collector and I'm just I'm just really into music these days. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, well, I think the one that works best for a career in a in Hollywood is just it sounds really simple, but um, someone said to me when I asked him for, for advice, the producer, old time producer, he said, be nice to the guy that parks your car. And, you know, I, it wasn't until like, I thought about it years later that I realized what he was saying. And that is that, you know, you kind of never know who you're dealing with and who that person is and what their aspirations are. And so, you know, basically he was just saying, don't, don't disregard people 100%. who you feel, you know, are just passing participants in your day. It's a good one. Uh, yeah, it was a good, it was a good one. Here are the takeaways for this week's episode. Tim first developed his craft and passion through necessity. We don't always have to be clear on our endpoint. I really appreciate Tim sharing this. We often think of people who've made it or had a lot of success as people who had it all figured out. And most of us don't. We're taking it step by step, brick by brick. And so Tim sharing this just points to the fact that if you don't have it figured out, it's okay. 
He deeply engaged the process of the craft and was present within the modality. That presence allowed him to hone his craft over time and figure out what he wanted to say and how he wanted to say it. We are all interconnected. Experiment in the mediums available to you. Through that experimentation, you will find your thing. Tim reminds us not to be afraid to advocate for our vision. When the networks were giving him pushback on his show, he held fast to his vision, which obviously served them in the end. Story is not linear. It is 3D. And there's many different ways to be a storyteller in the current climate we live in. Thank you for doing yeah, this. Yeah, this is what great. a Thank treat. Thank you all so much for listening. It really does mean the world to me. If you could take some time to subscribe, not only to our audio channel, which you can find anywhere that podcasts can be found, but also our YouTube with all of our video episodes. If you can subscribe, rate, and review, it would make such a huge difference to us. I want to give a big, big thank you to Parentheses Produced, Wine Designs Media, Young Spielberg, and Young Scorp Consulting. This really couldn't happen without any of them. This really is the little pod that could. Thank you guys so much and see you next week. Thank you.